Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Progress in the Treatment of Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia, or WM. Um, this program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the IWMS, and we are delighted with that collaboration. And really because, and we also collaborate with many other cancer organizations as well. Um, however, it's really because of our collaboration with IWMS that we have so many of you on the call today and your interest in the topic as well and the, and the ease of participating as well. We have over 1,500 participants on the call today. So um, you can't all see each other, but you're all here, and it's amazing um, to all of us. Um, it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. And I just want to comment that um, you come from all over the world to some extent. Um, many of you are from the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And then we have many international participants. And I just want to name the countries because I know there are moments when you think, oh, there's no one else who has, who's dealing with WM except me. So we have participants from Australia, Argentina, Canada, China, Chile, Denmark, the Dominican Republic, France, Germany, Hong Kong, India, Ireland, Italy, Netherlands, New Zealand, Panama, Spain, Sweden, and United Kingdom. So it's truly a, a global call, um, this one is. Um, and today's program is supported by Pharmacyclics LLC and Janssen Biotech Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now we have the best speakers on today's program and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jorge Castillo. Dr. Castillo is Clinical Director, Bing Center for Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Castillo is going to be addressing an overview of Waldenstrom's symptoms and signs, frontline treatment of WM, standard of care, <clears throat> and new treatment approaches, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Castillo. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Caroline, for that kind uh, introduction. I'm really amazed of the amount of uh, of people that you know take their time to listen to to listen to us. Uh, last time was about a thousand. This time it's about 1,500. It's really an amazing and impactful activity. And um, thank you really for the opportunity to address uh, you know the, the individuals here. So um, I, I do have about 13 minutes to talk about five uh, broad uh, topics on Waldenstrom's macroglionemia, so I will do my best to stay on time. Um, so uh, let's start with an overview of Waldenstrom's uh, macroglionemia. I, I always start by uh, stating that this is a lymphoma, uh, specifically a type of uh, lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, uh, and the diagnosis of Waldenstrom's is uh, established uh, at least uh, having two or three criteria in mind. One of them is actual presence of a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma in the bone marrow. Uh, this is typically uh, addressed by doing a bone marrow biopsy. And I would say over 99% of patients will have um, the diagnosis done in a bone marrow biopsy. 
a small proportion of patients might have disease outside of the bone marrow or only outside of the bone marrow, and, but those are a rarity. Um, the second uh, criteria is um, the presence of an IgM uh, monoclonal uh, paraprotein. Uh, typically, in these scenarios, patients have a high serum IgM level, and uh, protein electrophoresis does show the presence of this IgM paraprotein. Now, um, the bone marrow biopsy showing a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. Uh, in 95% of these patients, um, the the patients will have an IgM paraprotein. In about 5%, they can have a different protein. It could be an IgA, an IgG, or sometimes just a free kappa light chain or a free lambda light chain, and sometimes be non-secretory, meaning there's no evidence of a protein that is being uh, over-secreted in these patients. Those patients, uh, the latter, the 5% that do not secrete IgM, are lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma patients, but not really Waldenstrom patients. Waldenstrom's exclusively um, refers to patients with IgM secretion. So um, to, summarize, to summarize, I think all the Waldenstrom patients are lymphoplasmacytic lymphomas, but not all the lymphoplasmacytic lymphomas are Waldenstrom's in 5% of the times. Um, the, the most recent uh, um, criterion that we are using in, in, in my practice more often now is the presence of a mutation on a gene called MYD88. Um, in our research, we have found the presence of this mutation in approximately 90 to 93% of patients uh, with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. So if a patient comes to my clinic and uh, they do have a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma in the marrow, an IgM elevation, and the presence of the MYD88 mutation, then uh, in my mind, the, the, the degree of certainty that this patient actually has Waldenstrom's is over 99%. Now, the absence of the MYD88 mutation does not preclude a diagnosis of Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Uh, in about 7% of our patients, uh, 5 to 7%, um, they do meet all the criteria for Waldenstrom's. Clinically speaking, they do look like Waldenstrom's. They are behaving like Waldenstrom's, but they do not carry the MYD88 mutation. And that's a group of patients that we call MYD88 wild type. Um, and, you know, um, it, it entails uh, probably a different approach, uh, somewhat different approach than patients with the MYD88 mutation, at least in our, in our clinic. So um, it's a very slow-growing uh, condition. Uh, many of our patients are diagnosed uh, at an asymptomatic stage, and that takes me to the symptoms and signs. I mean, um, I would say in my clinic, more than half of the patients that I get to see for the first time are actually asymptomatic, and they were found uh, for other reasons. They were found because a protein level was elevated. They, they were found because an abnormal laboratory value, specifically the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, was elevated, and they, that prompted additional testing. Or, they, for example, they had uh, some type of orthopedic procedure, and uh, an imaging was done of one of the, of the hip or the knees, and that shows some uh, bone marrow heterogeneity, and that sometimes prompts, prompts a diagnosis that is actually incidental. So um, most of our patients, some of our patients are actually asymptomatic. However, uh, with time, I would say four out of five patients uh, will become symptomatic and they will need treatment at some point. And when we talk about symptoms and signs, uh, the most common symptom that patients with Waldenstrom's can have is actually anemia. 
there are a number of research uh, studies from the United States and Europe in which really anemia is the most common reason why to treat patients with Waldstrom's. Um, there are also other manifestations. Uh, we can have patients with enlarged lymph nodes or enlarged spleens or uh, low platelet counts or neuropathy uh, characterized by numbness and tingling of the feet, uh, more less commonly in the hands. Um, and other more rare presentations such as uh, kidney involvement or um, uh, presence of fluid in the lungs or even um, uh, meningitis because of Waldenstrom. So there are, there are so many different manifestations of disease, hyperviscosity when the IgM is very high. Interestingly enough, in some patients, for example, who have neuropathy, those patients are almost never anemic. And the patients who have hyperviscosity, you know, very rarely are neuropathic. So uh, clinically speaking, it, it looks like they are different diseases. But when we looked at those patients, they do carry, in most cases, the three criterion, criteria that we were mentioning earlier, uh, the lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma in the marrow, the IgM in the blood, and the MYD88 mutation in the malignant cells. So um, there are multiple signs and symptoms, but I think the teaching point here or the, what I would like to emphasize is that the fact that a patient has anemia and has Waldenstrom's doesn't immediately mean that the anemia is because of the Waldenstrom's. And the same would apply for the large spleen. The same would apply for the um, neuropathy. Um, we always have to make sure that we are um, evaluating other potential causes for anemia, other potential causes for low platelet, other potential causes of neuropathy, so we can treat our patients appropriately. Um, just to give an example, if a patient comes with neuropathy to be treated for Waldenstrom's and the neuropathy is due to diabetes, then you know what the least you need, the least thing you need for uh, diabetic neuropathy is chemotherapy, right? So in that specific sense, we always have to make sure that any symptom or sign that a patient is having, that we do have a, a good. Um, degree of confidence that is related to the Waldenstrom's. And obviously, when the disease is symptomatic, then and, and these symptoms are affecting the patient's activities of the daily living or their quality of life, then uh, treatment is indicated. And I'm going to talk about frontline treatments, and I know a treatment of relapse disease will be uh, addressed by Dr. Gertz a little bit later. Uh, in the frontline setting, we do have a number of different options. And uh, the, re the, the ones that I want to mention now are the options that, uh, in my mind, in, in our experience, have been associated with a uh, higher efficacy rate with a lower uh, toxicity rate compared to other regimens available. So uh, one of the ones that we use very often uh, and that we have the longest track record with is with bendamustine and rituximab. Bendamustine and rituximab is uh, a regimen that is extremely effective uh, over 95% of patients will benefit from that, and, and it's relatively benign. I mean, the, the toxicity rate of bendamustine is, is minimal. Patients do not lose their hair. They are not vomiting. Uh, they don't have severe decrease on their white blood cells. Having said all that, I mean, there is a 1 in 200, which is a very small risk of uh, secondary leukemia with that. Um, um, but, you know, in, in some scenarios, that could be or could not be, a, a, you know, a, a deal breaker. Uh, the other regimen that we use often in our clinic is a combination of a medication called bortezomib or medications alike, like protosome inhibitors, 
uh, in combination with rituximab as well. Again, um, very effective over 90% efficacious, um, but the side effects of bortezomib uh, could not be too you know, appealing to some individuals, specifically um, uh, neuropathy uh, that can be seen in a, in a good number of patients and that we have to manage appropriately when it occurs. Uh, these medications called proteasome inhibitors can also be associated with shingles infections and patients need to be taking an anti-shingle medication throughout the duration of the treatment. Um, uh, we do have some experience with ibrutinib as well in the frontline treatments. Uh, this is a, a paper that is going to come out very shortly. Uh, and we have had uh, success with that as well. Uh, and again, it's a, it's a one pill per day. Uh, there's uh, really some toxicity associated with bleeding and the risk of atrial fibrillation, which in our, in, our, in our experience is probably one in 20 patients who might develop this problem. Um, so, but it's something that we need to have in mind as well. And much more recently, um, in the last two weeks, there have been a study, a um, multi-center study in which they actually combined ibrutinib and rituximab in a clinical trial. And a number of those patients were previously untreated and we saw as well that the response rate of the combination is uh, over 90% um, with very uh, manageable toxicity rate. So in that specific scenario, it's another uh, combination that we can use in the frontline setting. Um, I, I, it is my understanding that um, the FDA is considering now uh, the combination uh, for maybe uh, approval um, hopefully, this is going to come out shortly, so our patients can actually benefit from from these combination treatments. Now, um, with regards to standard of care, I mean, uh, I don't think there's really one standard of care for patients with Waldstrom's, um, and because the treatments are very personalized from one patient to the next. For example, if a patient is very young, I would like to avoid exposure to a risk of one in 200 for leukemia. On the other hand, if the patient has neuropathy, then I'm much less likely to uh, recommend treatment with a medication like bortezomib that can cause some neuropathy. If the patient does not find appealing to be taking one pill every day in an indefinite manner, then probably ibrutinib will not be the right thing for that patient as well. So every patient should be taken, uh, every case should be taken individually and make decisions based on the efficacy, the toxicity, and the preferences of the patients as well as the genomic profiling of those patients too. So in terms of new treatment approaches, uh, uh, there are a number of them. Um, there is a medication um, called Venetoclax. Uh, it's an inhibitor uh, to a pathway called BCL2. We presented this data a couple of weeks ago in Stockholm. Uh, it seems to be very interesting. It seems to be uh, addressing a good amount of responses. Um, we're seeing, obviously, some toxicity, specifically with decreased white blood cells. Uh, but it seems to be very effective, even in patients who um, were exposed previously to ibrutinib and medications like that. So this is something that is coming up. We have a clinical trial uh, currently uh, combining ibrutinib with an antibody against CXCR4. Um, there's another study in which ibrutinib is being compared against a second-generation PTK inhibitor called zanubrutinib that is coming up from China. That study is almost uh, about to complete accrual. And we do have an, uh, another uh, clinical trial with a medication called daratumumab, which is an antibody against CD38 
uh, that has been very efficacious in myeloma and we think is going to be efficacious in Waldenstrom's as well. So those are newer treatment approaches, very different what we had before that could potentially impact you know, favorably uh, the, the outcome of our patients. Just to finalize in the last uh, minute or so, um, communicating with your health team about your quality of life, I think this is a very important issue um, because as we you know, have a lot of experience or more experience with chemotherapies and with proteasome inhibitors and monoclonal antibodies, um, now that we're going to be using these medications such as BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhibitors that are daily dosing, you know, we need to be very mindful of potential side effects associated with this. Before we were expecting side effects level three or level, you know, level two or level three, and then we say, well, at some point chemotherapy will stop, and for those reasons we can take those side effects. In medications that are indefinite, like ibrutinib, for example, even minor toxicities need to be taken into account in terms of um, you know, adjusting doses or seeing if this is the right approach for the patient. So I really encourage all our patients to um, be in close uh, contact with your treating doctors. If there is any type of um, adverse event that is unexpected, that you were not uh, alerted of, that you think is unusual, you should definitely get in touch with your doctor so um, they, this could be addressed in a timely fashion. And with that, I really want to thank you for your attention, and I, I give it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Castillo. That was really wonderful. You actually set the stage for the whole program today, and very, very um, informative and uh, lots of great information. I know people are going to have questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Maury Gertz. Uh, Dr. Gertz is consultant, Division of Hematology, Bone Marrow Transplant Program. He's Chair Emeritus, Internal Medicine and also Roland Seidler, Jr., Professor, Department of Medicine, Mayo Distinguished Clinician, Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Um, and Dr. Gertz is going to be addressing treatment of relapsed refractory Waldenstrom's, translating genomic findings into new treatment opportunities, symptom and side effect management, including reducing complications, peripheral neuropathy, and the role of clinical trials, mapping the future of WM. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gertz. Thank you very much. <clears throat> when we talk about relapsed refractory Waldenstrom's, the semantics become important, and I want to define those terms for those that aren't familiar with it. When we talk about the term relapse and refractory in Waldenstrom's, this is defined by a numerical change in the IgM. It has nothing to do with how the patient's feeling, whether the patient's well or ill. It's a change in number it's so that physicians can communicate among themselves about how patients are doing, and it's to define homogeneous populations for trials. But it doesn't necessarily mean a person needs to initiate treatment. So there's a difference between relapsed Waldenstrom's, refractory Waldenstrom's, and Waldenstrom's in need of therapy, and that distinction needs to be very clear both for patients and for providers. So some examples. Patient has an IgM of 6,000. They get treated. It goes down to 1,000. Terrific response. Generally, you'd expect patients to be doing extremely well. The IgM over a period of a year, two, three, four years goes up from 1,000 to 1,500. By definition, that's relapsed. But it was 6,000 to begin with. Now it's 15. It's absolutely relapsed. There's no question about it. I'd be willing to bet that three-quarters of patients in that situation don't require the initiation of treatment for their relapsed disease. 
everyone would agree this is relapse, but the fact of the matter is these patients can be monitored for a protracted period of time before treatment's initiated. The same thing is true for refractory. The term refractory means that the protein didn't go down 50% with treatment. So let's say a patient was a 6,000 IgM, IgM goes down to 4,000, that's less than 50%. That could be described as a minor response or refractory, depending on the uh, consensus. But those patients don't necessarily need to change treatments. The fact of the matter is that there are some patients who develop magnificent clinical responses. Anemia, the most common reason for treatment, can totally resolve. Uh, problems with lymph nodes, they can shrink even if the IgM doesn't go down this arbitrary greater than 50%. So I want to be clear that when you're discussing with a provider relapsed refractory, that we need to be sure that we're distinguishing that from do I need additional therapy at this time or can I be monitored? Now, with regard to the specifics of the treatment for patients in the second line that they've had previous treatment, it depends on two things, in my opinion. The first is, how well was the first treatment tolerated, and did it provide a beneficial response that was sustained for a good period of time? So let's say you received treatment program ABC, just making up that acronym, and you had a response and the disease recurred and you have symptoms within a year or two. It would be the policy at Mayo Clinic not to offer that treatment once again because for a disease with such an excellent prognosis as Waldenstrom's and with such superb outcomes, a year or two of benefit is generally considered and not very sustained. But let's say someone received the treatment and their disease is totally controlled for four or five years. The treatment took six months. The treatment was well tolerated. We'll frequently recommend that you should take the exact same treatment and that changing treatments when it's likely the first treatment that worked well and was tolerated well could easily be repeated. And the decision tree is really based on how deep and how durable was the response. The longer lasting, the more inclined I would be to give that treatment again. If it's clear that a different treatment needs to be prescribed because the durability of the treatment was not very good, then the next question that needs to be answered, and this is usually country-specific, is, is there a role for autologous stem cell transplant? The first of these is that Stem cell transplant in the United States has probably been in decline due to the widespread availability of new agents. But outside the United States, autologous stem cell transplant is still very frequently applied because it's a technique and a technology that's widely available globally and is often associated with durable, low-risk responses that can be applied in virtually any country in the world when novel drugs aren't available. So autologous stem cell transplant needs to at least be parenthetically thought of as a possibility. With regard to non-transplant related therapy in the second line, it all, of course, depends on what was given in the first line. 
And so that usually is a drug class. If the first-line therapy was an alkylating agent, then that clearly is not what you want to do in the second line. If you received bendamustine in the first line, you wouldn't do that in the second line. The same thing is true for proteasome inhibitors, alkylating agents, bendamustine, everolimus. Uh, one of the grand things about the management of this disease is that patients have so very many options. Um, as already mentioned, abrutinib is available, bortezomib is available, cyclophosphamide is available, everolimus is available. Uh, there's a whole host. Fludarabine hasn't been mentioned. Still a very popular agent in many countries, suitable uh, for select individuals, not widely used anymore. Yet all of these are highly active in the treatment of Waldenstrom's. And so the important thing, I think, in making the decision is what is the side effect profile, what side effects has the patient had from prior therapies, and then what drug class has failed because we want to exclude that from consideration with the next line of therapy. Now, with regard to genomics in the management of this disease, uh, genomics currently currently are not being used to determine what specific agent an individual is not usually used in treatment decisions. However, it's been a real boon in new drug discovery. It's been mentioned twice earlier by Dr. Castillo that Ibrutinib and venetoclax are highly active in the treatment of Waldenstrom's, and that's true. And the reason that these were agents that were discovered were the use of genomics. It's clear that patients with Waldenstrom's are high expressors of Bruton's tyrosine kinase, abrutinib, and the new generation BTK inhibitors, uh, BGB3111, acalabrutinib, all of them will target this protein that's highly produced in Waldenstrom cells and lead to their death. And finally, the B-cell leukemia protein, B-cell leukemia 2 expressed by Waldenstrom cells, is the target for venetoclax. And so the use of genomics has been very, very useful in determining agents that would be potentially likely to benefit the Waldenstrom's population, but not necessarily being used currently in treatment selection. With regard to the issue of symptom and side effect management, including reducing complications, I have to say this is really the job of the provider. I mean, complications in this disease are usually related to the selection of the chemotherapy. And these different therapies, these different drug classes, really have very unique side effects. So bortezomib tends to be neurotoxic, so it would be a poor choice for a patient who has preexistent peripheral neuropathy with Waldenstrom's. Carfilzomib, a cousin to bortezomib, has unique heart toxicities and might not be a good choice for a patient that has had prior heart disease, valvular disease, sustained high blood pressure. Patients who have very low blood counts coming into treatment related to the disease 
may be better treated with agents that have less of a suppressive effect on the normal blood counts. And there are agents that tend to be less suppressive to the blood counts and those that are more suppressive to the blood counts. And those can be used and really individualized. I think it's a mistake to think that in treating patients who need second-line therapy, that there's one right treatment for every patient. I think that the patient's other medical problems, are they diabetic, that would make the use of high-dose steroids inappropriate, the presence of significant kidney impairment. Some agents require dose modification or are more toxic if your kidneys are impaired are important. And so I really think here provider experience becomes important. This is not the time to go look up in a book or a cancer treatment journal about treatments for Waldenstrom's because you need to put it into context to individualize therapy for a given patient so that that patient will get the best benefit, but with the least interaction with their other medical conditions. With regard to the management of peripheral neuropathy, I think the very first question that patients need to be sure they understand before they go forward is, is the peripheral neuropathy part of Waldenstrom's or is it a consequence of treatment of Waldenstrom's? Typically, Waldenstrom's produces nerve damage by damaging the insulation around the nerve. This causes damage to what we call large nerve fibers, and it can cause numbness, but it usually doesn't cause pain, burning. Pain and burning typically are manifestations of what we refer to as small fiber nerve damage. That's typically related to chemotherapy, and obviously, the treatment of a chemotherapy complication is very different than treatment of the underlying disease. So we need some certainty that we're dealing with the right context. Is this because the Waldenstrom's is uncontrolled, or is this because I've received toxicity of chemotherapy? And as I've previously mentioned, if you have neuropathy from Waldenstrom's, there are certain drugs that shouldn't be considered. Finally, this issue of the role of clinical trials. This is your opportunity to get in on the ground floor for the next best therapy for Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. And it allows you to access agents you might not adequately access, and it allows you to really access what thought leaders in the world think would be the best treatments for the disease. And so there are active clinical trials, which you can just look up on the web under clinicaltrials.gov and find out what trials are being offered at different cancer centers. And so just for our cancer center, we're looking at antibodies that uh, bind to the programmed cell death uh, protein, uh, PD-1, uh, and uh, is uh, active in the treatment of Waldenstrom's and next-generation BTK inhibitors with fewer side effects uh, that are being uh, compared head-to-head -head with the brutinib to see if the two are equally effective and whether the side effect profile is different between those two. I think I've utilized my time, and I thank you so much for your attention.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gertz. That was really outstanding and, and very, very, very informative. And I think there'll be lots of questions for you. They're coming in actually quite frantically, so here we are. So um, you'll be lots of questions for you as well, Ms. Dr. Castillo. Um, and our next speaker is Mr. Carl Harrington. Uh, Mr. Harrington is, as many of you know, president of IWMAP. He's really been instrumental in today's program and selecting our speakers and really, um, really making this whole thing come together. So. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Carl Harrington, who will be describing IWMF's free programs and conferences. Um, Mr. Harrington. Thank you, Carolyn. On behalf of all WMers, I want to give my deepest thanks to both Dr. Castillo and Dr. Gertz for their presentations and providing such clear information in a way that we can all understand. And wow, I've got to say, it's hard to believe we have over 1,500 attendees on the call today. That is just incredible for a rare disease like WM. So thank you all for listening. Now, as most of you know, the IWMF is dedicated to a simple but compelling vision. That vision is to support everyone affected by WM while we search for a cure. Now, as you just heard from Dr. Gertz and Dr. Castillo, these are very exciting times for WM patients. We are closer than ever to a cure, and we're certainly closer than ever to better treatments for WM with fewer side effects and longer remissions. Now you may be wondering, why do we have so many new drugs in the pipeline and how come there's so much interest in a rare disease like WM? Well, it's partly because of what we've done together. Since 1999, the IWF has funded nearly $12.2 million in research uh, and over 40 specific research projects. And every single one of those dollars has come from donations from WM patients family and friends, people just like you. Right now, today, we have over $5 million invested in 13 active projects around the world. And we'll add another 1.7 million and four new projects later this year. So what's that all mean? Well, think of it this way. It means no matter when you, where you are in the world, when you get up in the morning, somebody with a huge IQ is working on your disease. And when you have dinner, somebody else is working on your disease. And when you go to bed, Another brainiac is working on your disease. Now think about that just for a minute. To me, what that means is, or another way to say it, is that the sun never sets on WM research. And for those of us with WM, that is a very, very good thing. Now you know the sun also never sets on IWMF support. We now have affiliates in 18 countries outside of the U.S. Taken together, the IWF, IWMF now has a presence in countries that represent nearly half of the world's population. That's incredible. We have over 65 support groups globally, and our materials are translated into seven languages, and they're all available for free on our website. If you don't know, our website, of course, is www.iwmf.com. And of course, that can be viewed in over 100 languages via Google Translate. So the sun never sets on IWMF support either. If you need us, if you need us ever, we're here for you. With the IWMF, you are never alone, and that also is a very, very good thing. Again, on behalf of WMers everywhere, thank you again, Dr. Gertz, thank you again, Dr. Castillo, and thank you to Cancer Care for your help and support today. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Carl. That was really wonderful. And actually, um, and actually, Carl and IWMF has really reached out to all of you through all of their um, every aspect of social media, their newsletter to bring this program to all of you so you would be able to participate today. So really, um, we really want to thank you um, 
Ms. Harrington for doing this to, to actually um, spread the word about this program because that really makes such a difference to all of you on the call. And our next speaker is Ms. Caroline Edland. Ms. Edland is an, on, is an oncology social worker and she is our online support group uh, program director at Cancer Care. And Ms. Edland is going to discuss Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services that are available to all of you. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Edland. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I would like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with WM and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional supportive services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that may arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online groups. In fact, we offer an online group specifically dedicated to the needs and experiences of people diagnosed with any form of blood cancer. You can register on Cancer Care's website at www.cancercare.org. This group and our groups in general offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a Cancer Care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our, our social workers can help you understand what this means for you and your loved ones. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help you. So please do consider contacting us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. And thank you so much for the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Edlin. That was wonderful and a resource for everybody as well on the call. And now we do have time for questions. Um, and um, I'm going to ask um, uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board now and, uh, and also to explain to everyone how to queue up for questions. I realize some of you are already doing this, but just let everybody know how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. With such a very large group, we probably will not get to everyone's question, and if we don't get to your question at the end of the call, I will explain to all of you how to get your questions answered. Okay, so, um, but Crystal, let's take as many as we can. <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. 
Thank you so much. Thank you, Caroline. This is another excellent seminar. Um, i like to know I am a breast cancer survivor myself, and I had Taxol for 12 years ago, and I have peripheral neuropathy. I am a nurse and a social worker, and I do like to know for other people and other patients I've had that have peripheral neuropathy from the chemotherapy itself. Do you know if Dr. Gertz knows of any studies being done now on cold, low-level cold laser therapy? I know about the acupuncture, but also I've heard about the TENS machine, the scrambler, but there's also the alpha-lipoic acid that I take and others take, and, of course, B6. I'd just like to know about all these studies being done for the peripheral neuropathy. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you so so much. we've yeah. had a lot of success with scrambler, actually. Uh, I think the biggest problem is that patients have to commit for anywhere from a two- to three-week induction period. Uh, but because of the nature of my practice, I use a lot of bortezomib or I see patients who've received this from other providers and develop rather very unpleasant, painful neuropathy. And we've increasingly been using scrambler therapy that has been really quite effective, actually. And in extreme situations, we've had our neurosurgeons place uh, nerve-blocking uh, stimulators uh, that uh, eliminate the pain. I mean, some of these patients have said their lives have been changed. Those are the two things that we're focusing on. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have another question from one of our um, participants. Um, uh, from our online participants. Oh, we have a question actually from one that came in just online. Just uh, here it is. Okay. So this question would be for um, some treatment side effects over Dr. Gertz. Um, so uh, the question is, uh, sorry, um, is intense itching of the scalp and body a symptom of WM? That certainly wouldn't fall into my experience. I mean, patients with WM can develop hives, and there's a specific syndrome attached to that. But these patients have visible um, skin lesions that you can see that are red and often itch. It's not generally considered part of the WM complex. Now, there is a medication called lenalidomide, which is used occasionally in patients with WM, not frequently, and that can cause itching, but generally it's associated with a skin rash. Itching without a rash, I would consider not likely to be a WM manifestation. Okay, excellent. And the question for Dr. Castillo, um, why should bendamestine not be used again if the initial treatment resulted in good and sustained response? Yes, so, I mean, um, there is, uh, in, in the guidelines, if anybody gets some benefit for a, a few years, uh, the treatment can definitely be used again. Um, from my perspective, um, bendamastin might have a cumulative effect that could be adverse in terms of stem cell, um, you know, toxicity, um, immunosuppression, meaning uh, affection of the immune system and how to fight infections and, and the risk of the secondary leukemia um, that could happen as well. So for all those reasons, you know, um, I, 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 w I will feel, I will be very careful um, on, on retrying uh, benamastine again, and typically that is not what I do. Okay. 
And a question for Dr. Gertz. I'm going to actually try to take as many of your questions as possible, so um, stay tuned. I'm Dr. Gertz. Um, relapsed WM patients in Canada do not have access to genetic testing to identify one strain or another. Can Canadian patients connect with specialists in the United States for genetic testing, and how do we make these connections? It's certainly possible to mail samples, but it requires a fair amount of coordination because the genetic testing is best done on bone marrow samples, not on peripheral blood. So that means coordination is important. But the flip side of it is that the genetic testing is, I think, unlikely to result in a change with regard to recommendations for treatment. In my opinion, the key issues are, one, what was the prior therapy? How well was it tolerated? How long did the response? What other medical conditions does the patient have? And I think those are more important than any of the findings. I think, of course, that some of the genetic findings are important in order to confirm the diagnosis, but we're assuming here that the diagnosis is well established. And so it is possible to send genetic samples. This is done actually all the time, but uh, it starts with the practitioner. And in many instances, these aren't covered by research. And if Canada doesn't pay for it, then you're paying for it out of pocket. Um, and then I guess I should just add, and I don't know if Caroline, if you want to add to this as well, but um, I would definitely connect with um, a support team in Canada. You have uh, social workers in Canada that could assist you, or financial specialists. And in the United States, we also have financial specialists and social workers who might be able to help. And I don't know, Caroline, if you want to add anything to that um, that might um, be able to be of um, assistance to you, perhaps from Canadian funds that might be available. Well, just to just to say in general, you know, even with some insurance coverage, you know, the costs of of treating uh, cancer can certainly be overwhelming financially, and so there there is help available. Um, cancer care operates a helpline. Uh, manned by social workers, and, and people are welcome to call us, and we try to search for ideas and resources uh, to provide. Uh, while many of our resources are U.S.-based, um, we do have um, listings of, of, of national resources we can offer. So, so I do recommend calling Cancer Care's helpline uh, at, at 1-800-813-4673, and we'll try to offer some, some concrete ideas and suggestions. And actually, in Canada, you have a number of um, comparable nonprofit organizations there and may also be able to, they have social workers I know, and they actually may be able to be of help with you, to you as well. So um, I would definitely explore that terrain as well. And IWF, um, Carl, do you want to comment on this as well? Do, do you get requests like that coming into your um, office? And uh, Yes, we do get issues about uh, financial toxicity um, or... Yes just the cost of treatment, and the best thing to do is go to our website, and there's a particular page upon how you can get help on financial issues. Oh, excellent. Well, that's, that, that's a wonderful solution. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Uh, and we have a telephone question as well, so I'm going to um, ask Crystal. Yes, next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Michael B. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, I was on uh, Imbrutinib, and it was working pretty well. But then I developed AFib, and uh, my doctors decided I had to give it up. But uh, it was never really clear to me that the risk of AFib would necessarily uh, outweigh the benefits of Imbruvica. So I just, I, 
guess I would be uh, interested in uh, someone's perspective on that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Castillo, do you want to address this question? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, unfortunately, atrial fibrillation is a very common arrhythmia in the United States. Um, we have data, however, that, you know, supports ibrutinib increasing that risk. Uh, the risk increases just in patients with hypertension, in patients with um, other heart problems, and just aging alone has been associated with atrial fibrillation as well. So in our practice, uh, we do have a number of patients uh, who obviously we have about 200 people in our on ibrutinib in our in our clinic. So you know, ibrutinib uh, atrial fibrillation is bound to happen. So yeah, we do not consider atrial fibrillation a reason why not to be on a medication that is otherwise being effective. Uh, if the AFib is not um, severe, if it's very manageable, there are ways in which AFib can be managed. There are different risks that AFib, um, you know, of AFib on having strokes and things like that, that is evaluated obviously much better by a cardiologist than by an oncologist. So we work very closely with a cardiologist. Um, we try to understand what the actual risk it is, uh, and but we also have we need to have in mind, and this is very personalized. This, this cannot be specific to to your case. But we always have to have in mind how many other treatments have you had, what type of response you're having. So there are many other aspects of, of the case. But in general terms, um, it is not a reason why not to be on a medication that is otherwise effective. Thank you. Um, and another question from uh, Crystal? Thank you. Our next question comes from Marilyn B. Your line is open. Yes, hi. This is in reference to the question about itching. Uh, on the listserv for the um, Waldenstrom's uh, Foundation last year, I posted a question about this and uh, about this intense itching. And there were quite a number of people who responded in terms of having a similar type of condition. So I, I know it was it was addressed briefly a little while ago, but I just needed to follow through just because of my experience and the input that I got after I posted that on listserv and people talking about just this intense itching, rashes, um, uh, and it would kind of come and go. It was just kind of uh, unexplained. So I don't know. I'm just going to throw the question out again in the hopes that maybe somebody has heard of it or seen this or... Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Excellent. Uh, excellent question. And um, I know we did address it, but um, it's always good to ask the question again, I suppose. That's a good model to have for everyone on the call. So, um, uh, Dr. Um, Gertz, do you want to address that question? Um, I don't think I can. Uh, I think if there's a rash, obviously, there's something for a dermatologist to see, potentially biopsy. Uh, I suppose there's always the possibility that a person with uh, WM could have potential vasculitis, cryoglobulinemia. Those can cause rashes and itching. But per se, I, I just can't think through what the mechanism would be where the lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma or the IgM that it produces would consistently produce intractable itching in the absence of a rash. So I just don't know how I'd manage it without partnering with the dermatologist. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you. So that's helpful to everyone on the call to, to think about that. Um, and um, we have a, another question from one of our online participants, and this is for Dr. Castillo. Assuming only blood information is available and no other symptoms, is it necessary to perform a bone marrow biopsy to distinguish between IgM, WM, 
versus IgM multi-myeloma? Well, uh, yeah, so the issue here is that, um, you know, uh, the fact that a patient has an IgM um, uh, abnormal protein, uh, that doesn't really give us any any sense of what the disease, the underlying condition could it be. And again, the list of uh, of different conditions that could be associated with an IgM uh, paraprotein include, obviously, a benign IgM MGAS. It could be an IgM myeloma. It could be Waldenstrom's. It could be another type of lymphoma that, for some reason, is ex- uh, secreting IgM. So, in, in, in for for all these reasons, uh, sometimes a bone marrow biopsy is necessary to actually make the right diagnosis. Now, if the only abnormality is the IgM MGAS and the pa- uh, sorry the IgM paraprotein, and the patient is otherwise completely asymptomatic with no other abnormalities. One could make a case on just following uh, the patients and not doing a bone marrow biopsy. Um, but if there's any other problem, let's say a neuropathy that the patient is symptomatic from or there's some degree of anemia, um, then obviously a bone marrow biopsy is always uh, the right thing to do so we can know exactly what we're dealing with. The treatments and the prognosis, all, all these conditions are very different. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and we have another telephone call. Another telephone question? Yes. Thank you. Our next question comes from Daniel B. Your line is open. Hey. Hi. Um, um, I'm Daniel B., and uh, I really appreciate this information that I've been getting. Um, I have uh, Wallerstrom, IMG. I have the M, uh, M spike, uh, which was way up around 4,000. And now it's down to 60. Um, but all through all of this, um, I created a, uh, a nerves in my fingers and nerves in my feet. They're quite painful. Uh, the bottom of my feet feel like I'm walking on a sponge. And if I do uh, some things around the yard, and so it, it hurts. It hurts really bad that, that evening. And your question, Daniel? Um, well, I, um, my question is: I have neuropathy, and I want to know. I'm taking uh, Lyrica, is that and OxyContin since they, since the day I had uh, my uh, my uh, chemotherapy. Um, I, I want to say that Dr. Casilio um, was my first um, uh, uh, doctor on this, along with Dr. Tapan, uh, where we lived in Nashua. Now we don't live there anymore, but. I just want to know uh, uh, why it, it's so bad, and am I taking the right medication, and where should I go? Well, thank you for your question. That's an excellent question. I know that's a big issue for everyone on the call. Um, Dr. Um, Gertz, do you want to address the issue of neuropathy? So this is important. There's a cautionary tale. This is clearly treatment-induced neuropathy, and this goes into the experience in selecting the correct treatment because there are treatments that aren't neurotoxic, and so this is sometimes an avoidable complication. Having developed it, discussed previously, I think this would be an excellent uh, opportunity to explore scrambler therapy uh, on top of the medication that's currently being used for the painful neuropathy. It can be quite intractable, and I'm really quite sorry to hear that it's the problem that it is. So I hope that's helpful to you, Daniel. Perhaps you can. Um, so could you talk about the accessibility of Scrambler in terms of accessing it, or? 
Oh, you can just go onto the web and type the Scrambler Therapy for Neuropathy and find out the closest center. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's very helpful. So, Daniel, I hope that's helpful to you. Um, um, and we have um, another question. This one will be from online question for um, for Dr. Castillo. Is the protocol for stopping a Ibrutinib for a medical procedure for seven days being reviewed for the number of days based on what type of procedure it is? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, surgical procedures can be grossly divided or subdivided into minor and major procedures. So um, uh, typically for major procedures, uh, the holdups of ibrutinib should be anywhere between seven, 7 and 14 days, while the holdup for minor procedures um, you know, could go anywhere between 3 and 7 days, and it all depends on how invasive it is, all depends on um, um, how bad the bleeding risk is of the procedure itself, uh, if there's any potential, other potential risks of bleeding that the patient might have, so yeah, it all depends on the on the procedure itself, um, and and obviously the, the the patient's history in terms of bleeding problems. Excellent, thank you. Um, and this question, on, another online question f uh, for um, uh, Dr. Gertz, um, was on a second round of treatment and ended up with a infection of my prosthetic hip, which was replaced two and a half years ago. Just rehabbing from hip provision, but a little nervous about treatment in the future. Could you comment on this, um, Dr. Gertz? Right. So that's important. I mean, that has to be taken into account. My working assumption is that whatever the treatment was lowered the body's immune system and the body's resistance and the ability to fight infection and probably led to a blood infection, which will deposit itself into a prosthetic joint. So that becomes critical in terms of, A, treatment selection, B, the dosing of a specific treatment, because sometimes you scale back the dose if there's a major risk of an infection, prosthetic joint, prosthetic heart valve, and you're saying, gee, it could be a catastrophe if we get into an infection. Maybe I'm not going to start with the doses that are published in the books and in the journals. I'm going to give a half dose and be absolutely certain we can get through this without suppressing the body's immune system well, and then maybe slowly work my way up rather than starting with a dose that leads to an infection and having to work your way down. Very important. Excellent. Um, well, this has been an incredible call, and I actually, um, in just wrapping this call up, before we, I tell people how to get their questions answered, uh, Dr. Castillo and Dr. Um, Gertz, do you want to just make some concluding remarks, because we've had a number of different questions, and there are certain themes that have emerged from all those questions, and the issue of perhaps going to centers of excellence for the treatment of WM, do you want to just comment on that? And, um, and just anything further that you want to say as well, just um, help to give people some guidelines going forth in terms of the care. Well, I guess I can start. Uh, this is a rare disease. It only represents 1% of cancer seen by a general oncologist. So most oncologists will have a smattering of experience and therefore won't have a fallback sense of how to best manage I think it's therefore appropriate if a patient has questions to get a confirmatory opinion at a center that actually 
has a good feel for this disease and actually sees large numbers of patients to help uh, confirm uh, what perhaps the local provider or perhaps offer the availability of a clinical trial that may not be available locally but allows really access to cutting care. I think sometimes with very, very uncommon malignancies, having a, an individual a provider that has lots of experience offers a lot of value for patients. Thank you so much. And Dr. Castillo? Yes, I, I mean, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, we see, I mean, there's a lot of um, very specific issues with Waldenstrom's that most practitioners, not because they are they're bad doctors, it's just because they don't see this condition on, on a regular basis that they might not be aware of, and, you know, they, there's no reason why they should be. Um, so, for example, situations like IgM flare, situations like how to manage the neuropathy, I mean, those are special, very special conditions that are very unique to, to our patients. So, for all those reasons, I agree with Dr. Gertz in terms of um, I think it's a good idea to see, you know, a, a, a specialist on this. Uh, in a second issue here to actually reinforce that idea is, you know, if you were inter if you are interested or you were interested on advancing the science, on, on you know, participating in exciting clinical trials um, that could potentially change, you know, how we treat this condition. I mean, that that's another reason why to why to see a, a specialist as well. Excellent. Um, and and um, actually. Um, um, Mr. Harrington, do you want to comment as well in terms of the role of IWMF in helping people to find those centers? And Certainly. We, we encourage people, especially people with difficult cases, to get second opinions. And we have on our website a list of physicians' directory, and you can go there and find a physician that you can uh, get a referral to. Not necessarily, it doesn't mean you have to travel to Mayo or travel to Dana-Farber. Often your doctor can talk to a doctor there and get help from you for you that way. So that's a doctor to doctor consult, which really helps them with the local treatment. That's an excellent point. And, and Ms. Evelyn, do you want to just comment about our blood cancer support groups in terms of both their availability and the online support groups that might actually just be helpful to talk to others who are having similar issues? Absolutely. So support groups are, are just a wonderful way to connect with other people who uh, really understand and relate to the experience of, of living with cancer. And we do offer, um, as I said, an, an online blood cancer support group for anyone diagnosed with any type of, of blood cancer. Um, and we offer that on our, our website. It, it's available to people nationally, internationally. As long as you have an internet connection, uh, you're able to join. And our, our, our support groups are moderated by a social worker who's there to offer resource ideas and maintain a respectful space. And uh, I think it can just be a wonderful way to um, share and discuss any questions, concerns, um, experiences, and get the emotional support in the community that, that you need when you're, you're going through treatments and, and managing um, this illness. Excellent. Thank you. Well, you know, this has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank our speakers. You've all been phenomenal, just amazing. We would love to have you go on and on all afternoon because we have enough questions to actually fill the day, I think. Um, and we also, I want to thank all of our participants who've asked such great questions on the telephone online, and we also appreciate the patience of those questions that we didn't get to. But now I do want to comment to all of you who have questions yet to have been answered. So we always recommend, of course, speaking to your healthcare team about any symptom that's really troubling you enormously. That's very important. But I know you all like to go other places to get help with your questions. And 
certainly the IWMF is an organization that has existed specifically around this very rare lymphoma and actually has a tremendous amount of resources um, that you can access from their website or by calling them. So please do be aware of that. Um, we've also mentioned that if you did want to get some form of counseling or support and just coping with your day-to-day -day issues and living with WM, that you can also contact our Cancer Care at, um, and, our, and we'll be giving you all this information. In addition, we often recommend that people, and we, there are a number of um, organizations out there, I also often recommend that people contact the National Cancer Institute. Um, they actually have a repository of information and treatment protocols, and um, they have something, a feature that people really like on their website at www.cancer.gov, which is a live chat feature where you can post your question, and they will research all of their databases and get back to you with information that you can then take back to treating healthcare team, um, and, and that would be helpful to many of you as well. And most importantly, we don't want anyone to leave this call thinking that you are alone. I know that many of you may feel at times that you're alone, but you, you are connected to all of these groups really really by a click of the mouse or by a phone call, um, and they are available to be of help to you. You might be surprised sometimes at what a difference it can make to connect with an organization and to have a regular connection with them. Um, I also want to mention that this program, today's program, because it's probably hard to absorb everything that was said today, that all of this information will be available on our website and I believe on IWMF's website as well, um, at the archived. Um, so those of you who want to listen to it again as a podcast, you can do that. And for those of you who want to listen to it on telephone replay, that can be done as well. So that um, it will be up for 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the next year, if not longer, so that basically you can access this information anytime you want. And it's amazing when you listen to something again and again, what you hear that you might not have heard the first time. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I hope you leave here with a sense of information and support and, um, and, and guidance in terms of some thoughts that you were discussed today and information, and that you also have some specific resources. We will send you all an evaluation, and we'll ask you to, in the evaluation, there will be a listing again of the resources that we really recommend um, that you, um, you know, take advantage of um, if you haven't already. So thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.